Luke 18, chapter 1 to 8. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected men. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Thank you, Robert. Morning, church. Good to be with you this morning. Um, it's interesting when you are committed to preaching section by section through a book of the Bible, how often Sundays like this one come up where there's some particular issue or thing happening in the life of our church and the text seems to line up perfectly for where I needed to go anyway. So we'll call it God's sovereignty over my sermon calendar. I don't know what, what you want to call it, but our text this morning to kick off, as you heard earlier from Luke, our week of prayer and fasting um, could not be better put together. So thank you, the Lord, for that. And uh, let's dive into it. Would you join me in prayer as we prepare our hearts to receive the word of God? Father, we thank you for the way you attend to all of our needs, how your word is fit for preaching in season and out of season, that whether we realize our need for it or not, or even sense the way you are using it to strengthen us, that surely you are accomplishing your very purpose, the very thing you sent it out to do. So this morning, Lord, would you do what you have promised to by your word and bring forth a great harvest of spiritual growth by the watering of the word. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Persistence pays off probably heard that phrase before. Um, motivational speakers around the country probably saying it just this week if you find the right place to buy a ticket into. Uh, there's a story of a man that's uh, been turned into a movie called A Million Miles Away. That man's name is Jose Hernandez. Uh, Jose grew up in California. He was born into a family of immigrants from Mexico, which meant he, like all of his siblings, did the same thing his parents did growing up, that is, they would go out in the fields and pick the produce that we take for granted in our grocery stores. He grew up with cuts on his fingers and various different bumps and bruises on his body with the hard life of being a picker. Uh, most people would not think much of an immigrant whose humble beginnings start out in the field somewhere in California. But from an early age, Jose had a dream. He wanted to be an astronaut. And it turned out he was quite a persistent young man. Uh, he worked really hard in school. It turned out he had a knack for numbers, 
which meant he was able to go off to college and there to graduate with a master's degree in engineering. Before you know it, he was hired on by the government, working on some very sensitive secret type projects. And eventually he had positioned himself in the career track to be one of the people that would be considered for the space program. So with some expectation, he started submitting applications. If you know anything about the applications to get in the space program, there's a whole lot of applicants in just a few slots each year. And Jose found, like many before him, it was not easy to get selected. He was rejected his first time, and his second time, and his third time, and his 10th time. You can imagine how easy it would be to grow discouraged over a decade after you'd started applying, still year after year to be getting rejections. He was rejected again on his 11th time, and then his persistence paid off on his 12th application, where he was accepted into the space program. And in 2009, to make it a story that's as American as apple pie, uh, Jose Hernandez spent 13 days on the International Space Station, living out his childhood dream. Persistence pays off, right? Uh, chances are you've seen that at work in some area of your life. Maybe you had to be persistent in order to get to a certain place in your career. Maybe you need a certain level of persistence in order to be able to break a bad habit or start a new one. Um, learning that persistence pays off can help you financially. It can help you organizationally. It's a overall good lesson for us to learn. But while the world can benefit from that maxim, Jesus has a far deeper application for us this morning. That persistence in prayer is of great value in the sight of God. That as disciples of Jesus, we need to learn how to pray without giving up, even when the world seems very unfair and the wait seems oh so long which is why Jesus gave us our passage in front of us this morning. It is a story he tells with an oh-so-simple message to it. Here it is. I'll give it to you right at the beginning. It is to pray, pray, and pray until the day when you see Jesus bring justice. Pray, pray, and pray until you see the day when Jesus brings justice. We'll see that this morning in two sections. The uh, first, first five verses is the story itself. And then verses six through eight are three lessons that Jesus would have us draw from it. So we can pray, pray, and pray until the day we see Jesus bring justice. Let's start off with the story itself. Uh, we are back in Luke. So it's been about a month since we've had our last passage. So let me just remind you, Jesus and his disciples... They're in this, what's called the travel section of Luke's gospel. Uh, that means Jesus and his disciples are heading somewhere. All these chapters along the way, they're getting one step closer to the destination where Jesus's mission will be accomplished. That place being Jerusalem and the cross of Calvary. And along the way, we're having a series of different encounters. They're like little pit stop conversations either with Jesus and the disciples or Jesus with his enemies, preparing the disciples for what is going to happen and how they are going to live once Jesus has been raised from the dead and ascended into heaven. Uh, our particular passage comes right on the heels of Jesus talking about 
his second coming and how to be ready for the, the day of judgment that will come with his coming that will catch the entire world by surprise, like a flash of lightning that comes out of nowhere, lighting up the night sky. Well, that's the theme, those are the themes, and some of them are going to carry forward into this particular passage. In particular, this idea of living in light of what's about to come. Uh, Jesus has already told his disciples uh, they are to pray to their Heavenly Father that he would make it on earth as it is in heaven. And yet, right now, you only need to pray that prayer because it's not on earth the way it is in heaven. Which means, oftentimes, when we go to pray about something, it can be very easy to become discouraged. For example, back in China, the late 1800s, there was a missionary that went by Dr. Schofield. He was an upper-crust British doctor who left behind his high-society life to go and meet the medical needs of the Chinese peasants and try to reach the 300 or so million people who had never heard the name of Christ about the gospel. Uh, Dr. Schofield, though, once he arrived, realized why so few of them had heard about Christ. The needs far outstripped the resources. There wasn't enough medicine. There weren't enough doctors to meet their physical needs. And there was nowhere close to enough missionaries to meet their spiritual needs. So Dr. Schofield found himself crying out to God night after night. Lord, will you raise up workers for the harvest? Will you send qualified men? Will you send the, the best and brightest that we have in Europe to come and reach this nation for Christ? How do you pray that sort of prayer day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, when it just seems like the hard things keep multiplying and your emotional reserves keep dwindling? Well, that's exactly the spot Jesus wants us to think about as he tells us this parable. Verse one, he tells us why he says the parable. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So when you find yourself in that spot where your spiritual strength is almost gone, this parable will instruct you how to pray, pray, and pray until the day when Jesus brings justice. The story itself is really simple, just two characters and a very obvious climax to it. Uh, the first character is a real piece of work. I will refer to him as the immovable judge. See him in, there in verse two. Um, he's described, I call him immovable because of two non-commendable qualities about him. It's said that he neither respects men nor fears God. Uh, by saying he does not respect men, that means he's the sort of judge that really has no compassion at all for any sob story that's brought to him. He doesn't care about the circumstances surrounding it or how hard it might be for you. You can't influence him by having a logical argument or by trying to use some sort of persuasion on him. He is completely and coldly immovable means you will not get a shred of compassion from him. Now, that's already not commendable, but it's matched with something that's equally so. Uh, that is that he is someone who doesn't fear God. Uh, the Old Testament says that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. 
And that means for someone to do the job of a judge, which is to interpret laws, make applications to life, the very bare basics of what's needed is an understanding that no matter how high a court someone sits on, there is a higher court of appeals in heaven itself that all will give an account to that judge one day. But this good-for-nothing judge, in fact, does not fear God, which means he cares nothing for justice. That's a horrible combination. Completely lacking compassion and having no concern for justice, you can imagine that this was the sort of guy who you didn't want to see adjudicating your case. Well, that's the first character. The second character is equally uh, colorful, if not unlikely, and that is what I'll call an unstoppable widow. You see her in verse three. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. You have to understand that widows back in those days were undoubtedly one of the most vulnerable members of society. Uh, that's because as hard as it is to be a widow right now, to have lost a spouse and deal with all the grief and difficulty of that, uh, back then, widows were not well cared for. Um, even if your husband had money, when he died as a widow, you would not inherit it. The vast majority of that money was expected to go back to his family. That meant a widow was basically on her own. And in a society where a husband was expected to provide for the wife as the main ways of women being cared for, uh, that left widows in a really tight spot. Even if they wanted to go back to their father's family, there was the added barrier where the dowry had to be repaid for her to be accepted legally back into her original family. Now all that added up to widows being people who were on the margins, people who no one thought much about, and people who no one expected much from. A widow had no levers to pull in most people's mind. And yet this particular widow has something commendable about her. She is persistent. Uh, day after day, she shows up somehow in front of the judge with the same message. Judge, you haven't forgotten about my case. Give me justice. Uh, we're not told how she got in front of him each day. Maybe she waited on the street corner as he went on his way to the place of judgment, hopped in front of him and stopped him, said, hey, remember, judge, you've got to give me justice. Or maybe she made her way through his assistant onto his schedule for the day. Uh, yes, sir, at 11 o'clock, that widow is back again, like every day. Oh, great. Yet another round with her. She is doggedly persistent because she knows that her cause is just. Now, we are not told exactly what injustice she had been dealt, nor what remedy she wants from the judge exactly. The only thing that matters is that she doesn't have justice, but she is persistent until she gets it. And all that drives us to the climax of the story. What happens when the unstoppable widow runs into the immovable judge? Well, it turns out that the widow wins, verses four through five. For a while, he refused, that being the judge. But afterward, he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because of this, this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. 
I think the way Jesus tells this story, it's intended to be humorous. This judge admits, at least inside his own inner dialogue inside of his heart and mind, that what he's about to do, he does for impure motives. He's not doing this because suddenly he's grown a heart. And he's certainly not doing this because he's been brought to his knees before a holy God. No, he decides that out of self-interest, he's just not going to be able to resist this widow longer than she can keep up her continual, persistent appeals for justice. She's wearing him down faster than she's wearing down herself. And so he says, you know what? I better just cut my losses. And I'll give her justice just so she'll stop. Uh, That last phrase there of might beat me down with her continual coming, there's an idiom underneath it of someone giving someone a black eye. Uh, That's how overwhelmed this judge, this good-for-nothing judge was with this persistent righteous cause of the widow. Now, undoubtedly, that's supposed to be a shocking outcome. No one would expect the widow to get justice, nor to overcome the defenses of an immovable judge. But that's what Jesus tells us in the story. Okay, the story itself is easy enough to understand, but what in the world do you do with it? Well, thankfully, Jesus spells it out for us this time. Unlike other parables, he tells us exactly what our takeaway lessons are supposed to be. There are three of them. That's verses six through eight, our second point. The three lessons to draw from it. Uh, The first is that if we are to be persistent in prayer, then we must be able to trust his character. It's impossible to pray, pray, and pray until the day when you see Jesus bring justice unless you trust his character enough to hang in there. Now, some parables, it's pretty easy to go straight from the characters in the parable to God and us or other people in the world. So take, for example, the parable of the wedding feast. Um, God is very obviously supposed to be the host who graciously invites lots of people to his banquet. On the other hand, we are the people who respond to that invitation, who experience a party that we never deserved, right? It's pretty easy one-to-one in that case. Now, in this case, though, if you try to do a one-to-one between God and the judge and the widow and us, you end up with a really distorted picture of God. Uh, God is not some good-for-nothing judge with messed-up scales of justice who we are supposed to pester incessantly through prayer until he begrudgingly gives us the justice that we so long for. Now, the God of the Bible could not be more different than the picture of the unrighteous judge we see here. And in fact, the way Jesus sets this up, it's obvious that we are supposed to contrast the judge with our heavenly father rather than see them as a one-to-one. Look with me in verse uh, verse 7, verse 6 rather. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect? who cry to him day and night. Uh, Jesus is using an argument from lesser to the greater. So if it's true in the story, then even a good for nothing, compassionless, utterly unjust judge can be at, at some point or the other actually give justice to someone who is persistent. 
then surely if you persist in your righteous prayers to your loving and good and holy heavenly father, surely you can trust him to one day give you justice. Jesus' logic is that we need to learn to trust in the character of the God we pray to. If we see what happens when we get down on our knees from the perspective of heaven, it is the highest court of appeal. And the judge over that court is the righteous, holy God of heaven. Uh, He cares far more about whatever cause of justice we're bringing before him than we do. No matter what needs to be done, he's more motivated to get it done than we are. And he's more full of love and mercy for those who are being harmed than even we are at our best moments. Now, of course, it's difficult to trust the character of God when you're in that period of waiting, when you're praying and praying and you're not seeing anything happen. Which is why when we find ourselves struggling with the character of God, we need to have the discipline of looking back to the cross of Calvary. Uh, There at the cross of Calvary, you see both the justice of God as well as his compassion for sinners and sufferers of all kinds. When you look to the cross and you see perfect Jesus hanging and dying, giving his life for the sake of others, you realize that God is fully committed to full justice being done. And when you see his bleeding wounds producing the blood that covers each of our sins, you see his compassion for sinners of all types. Yes, even those who have been greatly victimized in this world. So brothers and sisters, let's practice this spiritual discipline of looking back to the cross of Calvary so that we can trust the character of our Heavenly Father, uh, the one who we pray to and cry day and night to bring justice for our various causes. Uh, At the end of the service, we're going to sing a song well known about this topic that I think captures this well. It's what a friend we have in Jesus. Listen to these lines and have your ear attuned to this theme of how you can trust his character. Uh, What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. All right, if you're convinced that you pray to the highest court of appeals, that is to the holy God of heaven who is good and compassionate and loving, we have another challenge though. Because even if you are convinced that he will do what is right and good, you have a question of when he will do it. And that brings us to the second lesson. That you must learn to wait for his perfect timing. On the surface, Jesus says something that if you casually read it, might sound like it's untrue. He said, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them 
speedily. On first reading, it seems as if Jesus is telling us that whenever we pray for some unjust cause to be righted before the holy good God of heaven, that we should expect an immediate answer, or at least one, if it's not immediate by our thoughts, it's pretty close to it. And of course, that presents us with some problems. Uh, because experience would tell us that most prayers are not answered that way. Um, many times, things get on our prayer lists. Undoubtedly, things that God wants us to pray for. Even things that we are deeply emotionally torn up about and feel deeply the pain of the injustice of the moment. And yet, they feel like they just sit there day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. So is Jesus promising more than God can actually make good on? No, I don't think so. Um, trying to untie the knot is a difficult thing here. Um, I do think there is some help to be found in the fact that this is a difficult verse to actually translate from the original Greek to English. If you look through your various English translations, you'll see a fair bit of difference between them. So for instance, the NASB says, I tell you, he will bring about justice for them quickly. That sounds pretty similar. Uh, the NIV makes it sound a little different. I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. Still sort of similar. The King James sounds even more different. I tell you, he will avenge them speedily. Um, so there's some play in the way it's translated. But even so, frankly, I still think that you're left with the question at the end of the day, how, how do I understand this? I think the best piece of evidence, how you should understand it, actually comes from the context. I remember this is right on the heels of Jesus preaching about the second coming. Of that moment when the kingdom of God that's breaking into the world will no longer just be breaking into it, but will fully cover it. The consummation, the, the moment where judgment day comes under the righteous judge, Jesus himself. But Jesus is preparing his disciples for the fact that they are living in the time between times. The kingdom's already started breaking in, and yet it's not fully here. So if you were to place your prayers for justice in that version of measuring time, you would see that you are on the verge of having every single one of your prayers answered. There's no further era or epoch. There's not another time of redemptive history to come. All we're waiting for is the day when all the prayers are answered when Jesus arrives, whether that's thousands of years in the, in the future or something that happens this very afternoon. And to be sure, there are parts of Scripture that seem to say that God reckons time and the passage of the time in that way. Psalm 90, which gets picked up in 2 Peter, tells us famously that to God a day is like a thousand years. So we're not to reckon God's patience as slowness. So seen from that perspective, I think we as Christians should think about our prayer life this way. When we get on our knees and pray and pray and pray until the day Jesus brings justice, we should do so both with expectation and with patience. We expect, and we, indeed we have the conviction, that one day soon, Jesus is going to answer our righteous pleas for help. And yet we know that that soon 
might require quite a wait. It may even be longer than our lifetimes. Um, you can see the different ways where Jesus answers our prayers like this, uh, if you look carefully. Sometimes he answers the prayers immediately. I think if you get in the habit of keeping prayer lists, you tend to notice this more often than if you don't. Um, I got together with another pastor a few months ago, and uh, as we off, I often do when I get together with other pastors, we share prayer requests with each other so we can pray for other churches and other ministers, something good about the body of Christ, having that sort of fellowship together. And so I gave him a particular prayer request about a situation that was burdening me. It seemed rather unfair, and so I asked him to pray about it. Well, it was several months between that meeting and the time I saw him next. And when I saw him, he almost immediately said, hey, Tommy, uh, what happened with that situation you asked me to pray about? And I have to confess, my mind went blank. I did not remember what he was asking about. He had to jog my memory. And there's a reason why. It's because just a few days after I had told him about it and asked him to pray, the Lord brought resolution to that situation. He answered the prayer. And he did so in such a thorough way, by the time several months had gone by, it was in my rearview mirror. I'd completely forgotten about it. Now, I think God does that far more often than we realize. We pray about something, and in the moment, it feels like it's such a difficult thing. Then when he answers the prayer, we forget that we even prayed about it in the first place. So I think prayer lists are actually a great way to help you stay on track for those sorts of things. And to expect that, yes, when I start praying, or when I invite my small group to start praying for something, the Lord might well answer this in the very short term. On the other hand, sometimes he lets things stick around, even for very long periods of time. Uh, even times when the injustice is acute. Uh, missionary William Carey, when he arrived in India, quickly discovered a grave injustice that was occurring on a wide scale. Uh, the Hindus practiced something called sati, which is the practice of widow burning. That is, if your husband died, they were urged to voluntarily throw themselves on their husband's dead body and allow themselves to be ritually burned alive. Carey understood the grave injustice of this and what an affront it was to God. So he did everything he could to oppose it. He made appeals to the magistrate. He tried to arrange quick remarriages so women wouldn't even consider it. But most of all, he prayed. Uh, how long did he pray and pray and pray before the day came when Jesus brought justice? Well, in this case, it was 27 years. Sometimes that's what God would have us do. And he's not being cruel or cold or immovable to us. Now in that journey and in that patience, he has something that he is accomplishing for our good and for his glory. So we must learn patience. And sometimes we even have to have the category for us not even being around to see him answer that prayer. I told you about Dr. Schofield in China. Uh, he did not live to see those prayers answered. But shortly after his death, he ended up catching one of the illnesses he was treating, dying in squalor. Shortly after that, though, the Lord sought fit to answer his prayers. A missionary wave of excitement went through England, 
And seven men, the best and brightest that the schools had, the, had to offer, stepped forward to go and bring forth the gospel of Jesus to China. Among them was uh, one of my heroes of the faith, C.T. Studd. Uh, they went and laid a foundation which over the years and generations has now gotten to a point where some estimates have up to 200 million Chinese Christians now being present in that country. Uh, sometimes God's answer to our prayers, his swift justice doesn't come until we leave this world and enter into glory ourselves. But brothers and sisters, no matter how long the wait in earthly time, it is a swift answer. It's right around the corner. The question is whether we will use the period of waiting to learn the virtue of patience or not. Now, brothers and sisters, undoubtedly, I think one of the things that the Lord would have us do is use this time of waiting as an opportunity to encourage each other. Uh, I think this is one of the reasons why God lets us have those prayer requests persist so that we could persist in prayer together. So you can ask your small group and your brothers and sisters that you are close with to pray with you. And so that when God does answer the prayer, there's someone or a group of someone's there to notice it and say, surely it is true that God does give a quick answer to his elect when they cry to him for justice. There's one final lesson for us to learn that comes in verses, the last half of verse eight, and that is pray, pray, and pray until the day Jesus returns so that you can keep yourself alert. You can keep yourself alert. Uh, prayer has a dual function. It both reveals our faith and it actually stimulates our faith to become stronger. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Uh, Jesus asks a penetrating question. His question is not, when he shows up for his second coming, is Jesus going to generally find faith somewhere on the earth? Now, of course, Jesus is going to find faith somewhere. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. What he is asking is when he returns, will Jesus find faith in your heart? Uh, you see, running through Luke's gospel has been this repeated theme, a warning that we must be diligent to be ready for the day of return of Jesus himself. The day when he no longer comes as a savior to hang on a tree, but as a conquering king and judge over all. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this is undoubtedly the message Jesus has for you this morning. Uh, that you need to be sure that you are ready for the moment when justice swiftly comes to this world. Because as much as you want to see all the wrongs in the world righted, which will assuredly happen on that day, the most terrifying thing is that justice will come to each of us individually. Which means each and every one of our sins receiving the just penalty we have incurred. Uh, friend, the Bible says that there's no hope that you could ever survive that sort of bar of justice on your own merits. The wages of sin is death. And before a holy God, none of us will be able to give a single word in opposition. Your only hope is to throw yourself on the mercy of the one that will one day judge you. That is Jesus himself. 
You can trust that Jesus really can wipe away your sins by his sacrifice on the cross. And that he really does have compassion for you. Enough to give you a new life. And bring you into the household of God. Uh, but friend, you must do something to be ready for that day. You must repent of your sins. And you must trust Jesus by faith. The Bible tr- promises that if you do those things, then you need not fear the judgment to come. In fact, you will look forward to it with longing and eager expectation. as the day when all of your prayers will finally be answered and your joy will be complete. So friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian or you're not sure if you are, if you'd like to know more about how you can have that sort of confidence, the day to come, I invite you. Uh, you're in a room full of people that are mostly Christians. Look to your left or to your right, your front or to your back. Pick any one of them, whoever looks the friendliest. Ask them how you can receive Christ. They would love to explain it to you. Now to all of us who are Christians, uh, let's remember that this keeping ourselves alert through prayer is not something we can ignore. In fact, this is one of the things that we are supposed to do together to make sure our souls don't get drowsy and that we don't stumble or sleepwalk our way back into our old patterns of sins, but that we stay alert and awake until the day Jesus comes and that prayer would be a great asset to us in this endeavor. I'm sure you're used to doing all sorts of things to keep yourself awake. Maybe you like to drink extra coffee. Maybe you like to go for a run. Maybe you like to take a cold shower. I don't know what you want to do. But we all know you have to do something to keep yourself from getting drowsy if you're trying to stay awake. According to Jesus, prayer has that sort of effect on our souls. Which is why I think we have found, one of the reasons I think we have found it so helpful for us as a church to have this pattern of having a week of prayer and fasting each year. It's not just so we can have another event on the calendar. Believe me, we have enough events already. It's so that we can together rouse ourselves spiritually to find mutual encouragement and yes, even some correction to our languishing spiritual lives by dedicating ourselves to praying before the highest court of appeals to the righteous and good Holy One of Heaven, our Heavenly Father. So let me encourage you, uh, whether you've been planning to come for weeks now or this is the first time you're hearing about it, make time to come to these evenings. Now, I'm not expecting you to come to all five. Uh, Typically, our members come to one or two. Um, I think you'll find as many as you can make helpful. I'll also think, even if you can't make it, if you use those prayer guides and dedicate yourself to prayer during that time, you'll find it spiritually beneficial as well. <clears throat> why, are we, why do we do this once a year? Uh, because it's so easy, just over time, to get drowsy and to lose our focus. And by having this as a blocked out period of time on our calendar, it forces us back into what we hope would be a reinvigorating rhythm spiritually. Um, So let me encourage you to come. Each night we're going to pray about something different. So don't feel like it's going to get boring. Usually these are, um, the feedback I've gotten is that these are extremely helpful. And that it's much easier to pray when we gather together like this than it is to pray on our own. Um, Also, we're asking you to consider fasting along with your prayer. Now, in my experience uh, as a Christian myself, who was untaught on this for many years, as well as being a pastor 
who's taught on it for some time now, is that many Christians are intimidated by the idea of fasting. Um, I don't think that needs to be the case. Um, you don't need to think of it as something that's painful or especially difficult. Um, fasting at its core is um, abstaining from food or drink for a spiritual purpose. I think the best way to think of it is you are freeing yourself up, both in terms of your time and your energy and your focus. You're freeing yourself up from preparing meals and eating and all the other things that go with it so that you can redirect that time, energy, and focus to prayer to your heavenly father. If you think about it that way, I think fasting turns into a really helpful tool, not some nebulous, really difficult religious ritual. Um, now, to be sure, there are some health benefits from fasting. Maybe you've seen some of the specials that have come out recently talking about how both meditation and prayer as well as fasting have good physiological effects on you. Uh, th that may be the case. I I'm not asking you to do it for those reasons. Um, what's important is that when you do these things, that you can put your attention more on Christ. Uh, now, to be sure, when you feel hunger pangs, it's uncomfortable, but it's like God's given you a built-in reminder. Every time you have an urge to go out and get some fries from McDonald's, you realize, I need what God can provide more than I even need food for my body. So if you are able to fast in some way, let me encourage you to do that. Um, if you've never fasted before, just a word of advice, uh, please don't try to go the whole week all at once with no food whatsoever. That may be a good goal to work toward, but most people need to work their way up to something like that. Uh, one thing people have found helpful is just to skip the meal for whatever of the sessions you're going to go to, or if you're going to pray at home, and you just skip that meal so you can spend that time praying. Now, there are, might be also some here that are unable to abstain from food or drink because of medical reasons. And if so, please do not feel guilty at all. Um, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones helpfully, helpfully pointed out that fasting is legitimate from any legitimate pursuit. As long as it's not sin, if you put it down for a time so that you can redeploy that energy and focus to the Lord, then you can legitimately fast from it. And I think one of the more common ones people choose to do is fasting from their smartphones. So if you can't uh, go without food, maybe you see if you can go without digital devices for five days and use that time. Every time you feel a phantom ring of the phone in your pocket, use that time to remind you, I need to pray, seek my heavenly father. And brothers and sisters, in all this, this is not a heavy burden that God's placed upon us. Now remember, Jesus told his disciples this for their good so that they could be joyful and productive and ready for the moment that he comes. And that means that our time over tonight as well as the four nights that follow, it's a good gift from God to us that we're able to spend our time in this way. So would you come with expectation? Would you come ready to pray, pray and pray? until the day when you see Jesus bring justice? And would you do this with the expectation that yes, even in the moment of your prayers, you will begin to see his swift answer. In just a moment, we're gonna sing that song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. I wanna end this sermon by pointing your attention to the second stanza to it. Think of all the benefits that happen when we come to Jesus with our many cares and 
trials and even our prayers? Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful? Who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Amen. May Jesus help us to pray, pray, and pray until the day we see him bring justice. Let's do that now. Would you pray with me? Oh, Jesus, we don't have to work very hard to think of injustices in our lives and in the world around us. We know of broken families and prodigals that mistreat their godly parents. Uh, We know of abuse and horrific acts of violence committed around the globe. Uh, We know even of unjust judges who use their authority, neither respecting man nor fearing God. So Jesus, our hearts are burdened for this world and what we see about it and the great burdens it lays upon our hearts, which is why we now pray to you, asking you to both bring justice speedily and to fill our hearts for expectation for that moment to come. Help us to pray with the church down through the ages, longing for your appearing. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We pray these things in your name. Amen.